Welcome to Interviews. My name is Laurent Autain. I'm a business coach on a quest to crack the entrepreneurship code. So I thought, why not talk to entrepreneurs and ask them the right questions? I make sure to alternate between a male and a female guest every week. I hope their answers will inspire you. This podcast is available on all your favorite platforms. If you enjoy it, there are three ways you can help me make it bigger. One, subscribe. Two, share your favorite episode on social media. Three, buy me a pizza. Blog on my website, laurentnotin.com slash podcast and click on the icon, buy me a pizza. Interviews is brought to you by Social Prize, a marketing and communication agency managed by a highly qualified team and operating remotely since 2005. Social Prize specializes in digital technologies and communications, web development, e-commerce, remote working, coaching, training, growth hacking, and much more. Find out more about them on their website www.socialprize.com. P-R-I-S-E dot M-E. Hi, thank you for joining interviews. And today we are virtually going to France for the first time. I am with Dom Heinhorn, the CEO and founder of Unicorn Incubator. Hey Dom, thank you very much for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Laurent. Pleasure being here. Good. So I know that your entrepreneurship journey started at a time where the internet was the thing that nobody really knew about. Tell us about your journey. Yeah, it's interesting because uh, in fact, if you go back to 1992, 1994, uh, we didn't call it the internet, but we called it the information superhighway for mm. a period of about two, two or three years. And then when uh, Netscape Navigator launched the first version, which I believe was 95-ish, 96, uh, that's the first time we actually started talking about the internet because that's the first time the, the mass of users was able to connect via an intelligent browser interface to what we call today the internet, correct? What about your journey? How, how did it start? How did you become an entrepreneur? Well, I grew up as you did in France. Uh, we're, we have two things in common. We're both French and we have the same haircut. <laughs> <laughs> Which means we have no hair. <laughs> For those of you who don't have video enabled, yeah, we don't have much hair. And uh, at a young age, at the age of 23, I moved to the US to start a digital marketing company. Uh, went through my ups and downs, my struggles, but ended up selling it eight years later for seven figures plus. Uh, even though at some times between 1995, 1997, survivability was clearly an issue. Uh, you know, so I think for most of us who have gone through the process of launching startups in the tech space back before it was cheap, if I may say so, mm-hmm. we understand what that meant. Uh, it's a lot easier today to create a startup in the technology space because uh, I'll give you an example. In March 1998, my bandwidth bill for one month was $8,000 US. Too and I was, u- I was using 1,000 times less bandwidth than I'm using today. <laughs> and it's almost, it was, it's almost free today, right? Uh, for those of you who were around at the turn of the century, 1999, 2001, 
if you wanted to operate an e-commerce website, you needed obviously a database. And the only kid in the block was an Oracle with their server licenses, each instance of which would put you back $32,000 US. So in those times, and I'm a little bit older than you, so probably, you know, you don't remember those times, but in those times, unless you raised a significant amount of money up front, you had no survivability. You, you know, you actually had this huge hurdle to overcome first and foremost, which was mm-hmm. to raise money. And today with a little bit of help from friends and family, you can be in business literally overnight. So for those of you who are young, young today, Trust me, it's never been easier to launch a startup than today. <laughs> All right. How old were you when you started? I was 23. Yeah, I was 23. Yeah, so that was 27 wow. years ago. Wow. So, yeah. So you were a pioneer. So yeah, what, yeah. what prompted you to go to the US at the age of 23? Uh, I was also in the, in the sports circuit, in the contact sports uh, circuit. So I had a strength coach in, uh, that I met in Germany, the gym in Germany. Uh, who basically invited me to Las Vegas for two weeks. Mm. And the first time I came back was eight years later. So I, I overstayed a little bit my two-week period. Obviously, obviously, obviously <laughs> I, li- I liked it. And, uh, you know, what did prompt me was this massive entrepreneurial spirit, which back then you did not find in Europe and not in other parts of the world, which was very present in the U.S., I was absolutely fascinated by that, the ease of actually connecting with people, uh, other entrepreneurs, investors, and the ability to rapidly deploy and scale. That's what attracted me. And that's what kept me there. Right. So being an entrepreneur is part of your blood. I've never worked for anybody else. So I wouldn't know what, to, what else to do. I would be completely lost if it, <laughs> if it weren't for that, right? So yeah. a lot, there's a lot more things I've never done in my life than I actually do. So I'm definitely a specialist, not a generalist. Right. And what does it mean for you to be a, an entrepreneur? I think that's an interesting question. I think that at the core, it belongs, it's in your DNA. Mm. Uh, to a certain extent, I think you are born, either born with it or not. What I mean by that is the inclination towards risk, towards doing whatever it takes to actually achieve a set objective, the discipline, the grit, and the resilience it takes, it's not for everyone. And I'm not putting down anybody else, right? Because mm-hmm. uh, we, we need a lot of other people. We need great engineers. We need artists. We need people from all walks of life. However, if you really, truly want to be an entrepreneur, in most cases, you already are. And what I mean by that is that you're never going to ask yourself the questions. If you already, if you're asking yourself the question, am I an entrepreneur? The chances are that you're not, or you would not be asking yourself that question. If you are an entrepreneur, you know it, you feel it, and you just can't wait to get up in the morning and do stuff, no matter what it takes, no matter the obstacles, you're not afraid to fail. You're not afraid mm-hmm. of what anybody else is saying to you. In fact, when somebody tells you, this is ridiculous, you're absolutely going to fail. The true blue entrepreneur, he goes, you know what? This is the guy I'm going to prove wrong. I'm actually going to do exactly the opposite. I'm going to stick to my guns and I'm going to prove the rest of the world wrong, even if you are wrong, right? So even if you ultimately realize that other people were right, in your mind, you have no, there's no question whatsoever. There's no, not an ounce of a doubt that you are on the right track and that you're doing the right thing at the right time. Wow. 
That's so it, a does, it does take a statement. It does take an extreme mentality to succeed in this space, right? Now yeah. there is a silver lining because not everybody is like that. In my experience, because I'm obviously also supporting a lot of other entrepreneurs today via the incubator, but in my experience, what I'm just, just describing right now represents five percent of the population, one in twenty, right? Mm. And not and not more, maybe less. I would say between three and five percent that actually have this mentality. However, don't despair. If you're not that person, you still want to participate in an entrepreneurial venture. It's all about the team. On that team, you need someone that has that mentality. It doesn't have to be you. But there has, mm. to, be a, there has to be a co-founder. There has to be a key driver that will just hold everything up while the rest may crumble and make sure it doesn't fall on everybody. You need to have that energy. You need to have that passion. You need to have, to have that, that drive inside of your team. Otherwise, chances are you will not succeed, at least in my experience. Right. Well, I agree with you. And that's, that is something that I've heard other guests uh, say on this, on this podcast. So is that the kind of things you tell or you teach the startups uh, that go through your incubator? Yeah, it's hard to teach that, right? That's why I said you're probably born with it. Mm. Uh, however, you know, what it's easier to teach is team building. So if you have, let's say a couple of co-founders who do not have that mentality, or you have a founder that may have more of the employee mentality and is deciding, should I be an employee? Should I be, should I be an entrepreneur? Right. At one point mm. in time, you got to jump in or you got to bring someone on board who has that mentality. So what we do teach is proper team building. Because the last person I need on my team is another me. I'm already there. It's like building a puzzle. If you have the same piece twice, or those of you who collect paninis like I did when I was a kid, yeah. right? If you have the same player twice, you have to exchange them for another one because you cannot stick him into your book, right? True. That's, and that's actually probably a pretty good metaphor because here you're building a team with the panini stickers, right? So what you really want to do is you want to identify your holes on that board and the most gaping holes those are the ones you need to fill in very very quickly so let's say you have an organization that started by one or two founders that are more like me more like sales driven more like marketing driven and if you're in the tech business you need an engineer well that's the first person you're going to be looking for to complete mm -hmm. your team if you are a founding team of two phd engineers in most cases, you're more analytical. You have high IQ, sometimes lower EQ, not always, but sometimes lower EQ. You need to now find a high EQ person to balance you out as a team so that the whole DNA of your team is truly representative of a team that performs, that succeeds, and that can scale. Mm -hmm. In the ideal scenario, one and the same person has very high IQ and very high EQ but that's a rare breed, right? In my experience, it's almost impossible to find. And that's human nature because when we have a tendency of when we're good at something, that's what we dedicate our life and our time towards. So we actually become more proficient uh, in, the, in that space and we kind of leave behind what we're really weak at, right? Again, the right. whole idea is to balance out the team and to make sure that you can fire on all cylinders, you know, depending on what industry you're in. If you're in the tech space, you want to make sure clearly you have great engineers, but ultimately you also have to have great sales and marketing people because unless a sale happens, nothing happens.
Let's make that clear. Unless a sale happens, nothing happens. Without clients, totally. without revenue, you're out of business. Totally, totally agree on this. That is something that we need to enforce and hammer a lot. If you could have the best product in the world, no sales, no revenue. I agree with you. What, what other things do you teach to those startups? Well, see, we basically, and I'm talking about unicorns specifically because we are relatively specialized, if not highly specialized. Number one, we're located in a small rural area. We're not in mm. a big city. We're in Sarlat, S-A-R-L-A-T, in the southwest of France, a town of 9,000 people in the winter and two and a half million tourists in the summer, right? <laughs> <laughs> But it's not Paris, and that's by choice. Right, mm. we be, we're in a, we're in a space where you can actually properly balance uh, work and life. That's one of the ideas, and where you can be more efficient as a human being. Uh, for me to go to work takes me a minute by foot. Right, for most of my employees, it's the same thing. They drop off the kids at school when they walk to work, and they pick them up at home, and it takes them 10 minutes to go back and mm. forth. But if you really think about the energy that it takes to actually launch and scale a startup, or in our case, provide an ecosystem to support those startups and accelerate them, you have to take that into consideration, right? I don't want to be fighting two or three hours of traffic in the morning and at night, because that's very productive work that's being taken away from me. And when I scale it across my team, which today consists of roughly 30 people at Unicorn, you can look at the multiplying effect of that inefficiency. Right. So mm. going back to your question, address it in a head on. What we do teach first and foremost is efficiency. Uh, what I mean by that is proper workflow that will ultimately help them to scale. First, figure out if there is product market fit for what they do. Get mm. to that product market fit very, very quickly. Build an MVP very, very quickly. Get some traction almost instantaneously on the market side, if you're B2C play, we want to get some clients under our belt very, very quickly, even if the product is not perfect. If you're B2B, pretty much the same thing. And then we have a new baseline where we can actually take a look at your deal and say, look, you know, this is validated or it's not being validated. If it's not validated, you may be, you may be able to pivot. So we make the recommendations as to what we would do on the pivot side. But once we actually reach a certain level of traction, That's probably what we do best. We take that on a one-off basis with the intent to scale it indefinitely. And that's what mm. we do through our acceleration program. Because you are an incubator and I can see here in Finland, everywhere in the world, there's a, a lot more startups. And I think the, the COVID um, pandemic has accelerated the number of startups or people who want to become entrepreneurs. I see a lot of uh, incubators or accelerators playing the game of the VCs, like structuring a startup so that the VCs will invest in them. But somehow I feel, you know, this is kind of not necessarily the right approach because on the way, you know, they, also, they also forget that you need to build the foundations. If you want to have a solid business long-term, you need to build the foundations of it. And I feel that there is a disconnect between the VC world and the startup world. Do, do you agree with me? Oh, I couldn't agree more. And I would actually go beyond that. Uh, number one, what we do is probably radically the opposite. I don't care of a startup having VC fit. I really don't mm. care. What I care about is the product, product the service that a startup is launching having client fit. 
because the client is ultimately who's paying for your product and service, right? The, yep. the VC in most cases is at best complementary to that process, at worst is an obstacle to that process, right? So if you're an incubator today and your business model revolves around creating startup VC fit, you're probably missing the point, right? Because what's the impact that you want to have, right? In our case, the impact is virtually instant job creation, right? So we're really concerned mm -hmm. about that. We want to make sure that there is a positive impact in terms of the applicability of the product service towards its customer base. If it's a B2B client, do we help help that B2B client making his life easier? Help the organization make, make the lives easier, yes or no? If it's B2C, how do we really enhance a final consumer's and end consumer's life? That's what we're looking at, right? Because frankly, especially at this stage, we are not involved with VCs. We have uh, an angel network that we're working with. Uh, mm -hmm. Those angels understand our objectives a lot better, agree with them, right? Don't have the same criteria that a VC would have. Uh, the downside, what I see with VC is this flipping, uh, right? Uh, not for all of them, but it's, it's definitely prevalent. Almost like if you remember the, the uh, real estate bubble in between 2006 and 2008, where before they actually get involved, they already know they have, they have a buyer on the other side and they somehow artificially uh, modify the DNA of that startup to fit that mold to ultimately mm -hmm. have an exit. So they want to have an exit before they invest, right? That's not our model. What we're looking for are business models that can fundamentally impact the world in a positive way. And that's where we come in, me first and foremost, every single deal that's come through our doors, I first invested in myself. I put my money where my mouth is first and foremost. And then usually when I do that, I have a following of investors that say, hey, if it's good enough for Dom, it's probably good enough for me, especially knowing that you know, we're gonna use Unicorn to incubate and accelerate that startup. I like what you said about make sure that we, the, the companies are client fit. That is something that we forgot so many times. You know, it's funny. How do I mean, you become? Yeah. Go on. Sorry, go Sorry. on. Sorry, apologies for interrupting you. But the client fit for me is probably one of the first criteria I, I, I look for because a very, very simple reason. Uh, if you remember the early discussion that we had at the beginning of the call when I mentioned how expensive it was in the 90s to create a startup versus today. Yeah. As a result of the creation of a startup becoming so demonetized and democratized over the last 25 years. What we're seeing today are business models that are popping up that should not even exist. So what I mean by that is that usually out of pure passion, an entrepreneur or a group of entrepreneurs is getting together, producing a product or service. They're actually creating the problem before attempting to resolve it. Mm. For me, that's not a durable, that's not a sustainable business model, right? If you're, if you're incapable of addressing existing problems and providing a solution to those problems, in my opinion, you have no point being in business, period, right? So mm -hmm. that's what defines product market fit. Show me what the problem is, show me how large it is, show me how, people, how many people it affects, 
ideally it's a very, very large problem where that's affecting tens of millions, hundreds of millions, even a billion people in the world, shortage of water in some parts of the world, for example, and then show me how you provide a solution to that problem. But sometimes what you're seeing as a result of it being so cheap to create new business models are quote unquote invented problems. And then here's mm-hmm. the solution for it, right? Personally, I don't have any interest in that. I mean, I could talk about it for ever, but I'm limited by time. So I would like to go back um, and talk about your own entrepreneurship journey. What are the key lessons that you've learned? I mean, since you started again, what, 1992, if I remember? So yeah. Since 1992, what are the main key lessons that you've learned? I think the most important lesson is my own definition of failure versus success. Uh, if you okay. ask 100 people today in the world, Give, have them give you the definition of failure versus success. They're going to act, they're going to talk about the two concepts as being the diametrical opposite. And that I've learned through my journey that is fundamentally wrong. In fact, mm. it would have been impossible for me to succeed had I not gone through countless amount of failures. So my definition of failure is radically different. For me, failure is a stepping stone to success and mm. I know that may sound canned, it may sound vague, but I'm going to give you a very concrete example that proves my point. It's what I call the rule of 36 over one. When I Go went on. to the US at first, the first thing we did, I started myself, we were selling websites, building websites and selling them to businesses in a time when it was like selling ice to Eskimos. You're in Finland, you know what I'm talking about, mm-hmm. right? So. People didn't want a website, and most people didn't know what a website was, yet we started a company that was selling them to B2B client base. So it took me 35 contacts, live discussions on the phone with potential clients, and the 36th was a sale on average. In other Mm. words, I failed 35 times in a row to succeed once. I failed Mm -hmm. 95% of the time. And yet a few years later, I sold that business for seven figures plus. Mm. And, but think about how important it is to understand, right? 95% of the time I was failing, yet it ended up being a huge success. What I'm saying is the takeaway, the moral of the story is you have to embrace failure, not shy away from it, right? And most people, and again, I'm not knocking on anybody, it's human nature. We were, you know, our brains were wired this way. And you have to rewire your brain if you want to be an entrepreneur, right? In this case, you have to say, you know what? I understand. I'm going to have to fail, 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 fail until I ultimately succeed. Case in point, when Thomas Edison, who invented, famously invented, invented the light bulb, when he yeah. was asked why he succeeded where so many people before him had failed, his answer was, I finally ran out of things that did not work. Mm. Right? He ran out of failures, thousands of them. And then he had one single success and hundreds of years later, we still remember who he is. Yeah. And we yeah, only Michael remember Jordan 100%, the Michael Jordan quote, the same thing. We yeah. only remember the final success, one single one, but for all of his career, he had failed one success. And that's how he's defined by nobody remembers the failures. True. And that ties into something you were saying at the beginning of the conversation, you were talking about persistence. I mean, it does require persistence. It does require maybe bravery, courage. 
because a lot of people could be like, you know, I feel like 20 times nobody wants my product. So enough, I'm going to do something else. That's right. That's right. That's what I mean by rewiring your brain. Our brains mm. have been wired from a very, from very early childhood of accepting failure as okay. Right. So your little child, you want to touch the fire on the, on the stove and mom says, no, don't do that. Okay. Right. Mm. I can't do that. Okay. And you hear a lot more no's as a child. It's normal, right? Because your parents want to save you and want to make sure you don't hurt yourself. But that gets deeply ingrained in your brain. Later on in life, that works against you, right? So you can read a lot of psychology where, you know, some advanced psychologists will, will tell, will try to teach the parents for every no, you got to give the kid two yeses, right? No, you cannot do that. However, little Laurent, you can do this. You can do this, right? Look at this. Go ahead and do this. Go ahead and do this. So two positive mm. options versus one negative. Unfortunately, it doesn't happen that way. So when we're in our early 20s or 50s or 70s and we want to launch a startup, we're somehow hardwired in that way. And we have to break through that clutter in order to succeed, which means that we have to fundamentally rewire our brains and take what's for granted and throw it out the window. Okay. And it's not yeah. easy because it takes work. I understand, right? But you have to be aware of what's really going on. So if, if you're not aware that you're going to have to fail most of the time in order to ultimately succeed, after one or two failures, you're going to throw in the towel, you're going to give up, right? But that's a lack of hindsight. You have to be able to see the forest for the trees. It's like being in the middle of the forest and seeing one tree and the tree is rotting. And you can be standing there all day long and say, oh my God, this is horrible. This, number one, you're going to say this tree is rotting. And then you're going to say, oh my God, forests are dying. And then you're going to say, mm. wow, every forest in the world is dying because you're only seeing that tree. But if you zoom out, that may be the only tree that's rotting in the entire forest and the rest of the forest is perfectly healthy. Right? So you actually yeah. have to be able to do that with yourself. It's almost like an out-of-body experience. Right? It's a good exercise for everybody to do. No matter what it is you're doing right now, you're sitting at your table, you're sitting on the couch, you're having dinner. Think about zooming out from yourself and analyze yourself. See yourself doing what it is that you're doing because you have to be able to take a third-party perspective on who you are at any given time. Initially, it's a difficult exercise. If you do it a few times, it becomes easier and easier, but you almost have to be able to look at yourself as a third person, especially as you're scaling a business. Because once you start scaling, it's no longer about yourself. Yep. It's about the entire team. It's about your clients, et cetera, et cetera. And you have to be able to zoom out like that forest and see yourself as one tree and how you actually mingle and interoperate with all the other stakeholders. The business coach in me is really happy right now. <laughs> I'm glad. I'm glad. <laughs> because that's exactly the type of work I, I do with my, with my client taking that zoom, zoom out. We're helping them take that zoom out. Excellent. What do you want to take your, your business to? What's the big dream? So today, obviously, my, I'm, I've, I've morphed from a startup entrepreneur, which I still am at heart. But over the last six to eight years, I've become more and more of an angel investor, where mm -hmm. I, number one, I identify talent, uh, human talent, and great projects that we bring into our fold at Unicorn and then support with a whole ecosystem of support. 
And really what I think, uh, if I had to take a step back and say, look, what, what impact do I want to leave? I want to be able to do this for a maximum amount of startups that do have an impact. So I want to be able to help them amplify their own impact. I want to become an enabler of enablers, right? So for example, if you, you know, if you take a clean tech venture, one of which we're working with that already has an impact, I want to be able to help him scale that tenfold, 100 fold, which, you know, which they couldn't necessarily do on their own by giving him the right tools, the right resources, the right network. And I want to accelerate that pace. And within the next 18 to 24 months, we want to go from 11 startups today to 50 plus right here in mm. Sala. Right now, some of them are remotely incubated because of COVID, uh, but more and more of them are looking at us, you know, and they're looking at some of our early successes uh, and trying to replicate them for them. Right. So I think it's time that we talk about the Startup Super Cup. So can you tell us what, what it is? Yeah. So the Startup Super Cup initially was a concept uh, that we came up with the last year uh, that has quickly become an event. Uh, the mm -hmm. event will take place on October 1, 2, and 3. It's a Friday through Sunday of uh, 2021, this year, in about mm -hmm. eight months from today. And it will bring together a little over 1,000 stakeholders, primarily business angels, angel investors, uh, roughly 80 early-stage investment funds, uh, between 100 and 120 startups in the technology space, and a lot of media, like yourself, uh, podcasters, financial media, startup media from all over the world, over 100 of them. And they will compete for a grand prize, which is a large incubation package that we will provide the unicorn. We'll also have a nice little trophy that will be carved by the world champion chainsaw sculpture, uh, mm. wooden, wooden sculpture of, of a unicorn. But there will be a tremendous amount of media attention before, during, and after the event. And the idea is to bring early stage ventures together and get them to face-to-face -face meet with the capital providers. On the capital provision side, we're actually making sure that the investors are coming have invested at least in one venture over the last 12 months. That's our main criteria. You know, So instead of your business card saying you're an investor, your checkbook needs to say you're an investor, right? Mm. Even though we're not, no longer using checkbooks these days, but you have to have made an investment. And the idea also is to run the event every single year at the same date thereafter. So this year, the first one, we have almost 800,000 pre-registered users, knowing that we will cap it between 1,000 and 1,200 with eight months to go. I would like you now to uh, zoom out, like you said earlier, and tell me, what are you the most proud of? Probably the most proud of the team uh, that I've been able to amass a, a sample from around the world where, as I mentioned, roughly 30 people uh, from 18 mm. different nationalities with uh, a Croatian person coming this weekend, with, which will make it 19. Uh, highly diverse, uh, highly skilled. Even uh, the, the super young ones that just joined the team, they're learning very, very fast. We also have, which is something that's very rare in the tech space, a majority of women versus men. You're going nice. to be hard, hard pressed to find that in Silicon Valley. And that's not by, because anybody told us to do it, right? So I have my own di definition of diversity, just do mm. the right thing. And if you do the right thing, diversity will happen on its own, right? Mm. Just look for talent, 
and you realize quickly that no matter how talented you are internally, there's always more talented people on the outside, right? Uh, also try to find smarter people than you are, right? That's, that's always important, at least in a very, very specialized field, right? Yeah. Overcome your weaknesses that way. Figure out your biggest weakness because we also own, as you know, the local rugby team. We do the same thing, right? So if you have a weakness on the wing, you're not going to hire a center or vice versa, right? Focus on your weaknesses and make those weaknesses your strengths. Turn them into strengths. And that's where you're going to see a lot of progress very, very quickly. Would that be the one recommendation you would give to uh, entrepreneurs out there? I think it's definitely on, in, in, on this, on this, for the scale-ups, for sure, yeah. right? Uh, earlier, earlier in the game, I would, such, I would still focus on just overall team building. Mm. But uh, when you're actually, you're actually starting to scale, it's even more important to make sure that uh, to reach your critical KPIs, that you have really the best talent in place at each Uh, at each level, at each department to be able to perform because without a mm. human element, it's not going to work. I agree. Clearly, people are very important to you. Yeah, people super important, especially since unlike technology, people don't really scale, right? So mm. if you think you can just magically scale people via all sorts of automation processes, some of which we're using ourselves, don't fool yourself. It only works to a certain extent right? Uh, you're not going to, as in Alsatian, my, my dad would say, it's my native language, you, you can dope up a donkey as much as you want, he's not gonna wear, never going to win a horse race, right? <laughs> that's, that's very true. You need, you, need ra- you need race horses, right? At some point in time, the donkeys are not going to work. Is there anything you would have done differently in your entrepreneurship journey? Oh, for sure. I mean, um, probably a million things, right? Because now that I understand, I have the hindsight, I understand what fails and what, what works, right? Mm. So usually the way I would sum that up is the moral of the story is that I cannot always tell you what it is that you should be doing, but I can tell you with almost certainty what it is that you should not be doing. So there will be an, a large number of things I wouldn't do. I wouldn't scale the same way. I would hire differently. I would have impeccable timing if I had the hindsight. In terms of which product or service I would launch, I mean, by the minute, right? If I could look back at the book. <laughs> But again, it just doesn't work that way, you know? Because if we, if we did have that hindsight, we would have a crystal ball and we wouldn't have to deal with any of that. Everybody would be successful. So my show is called Interviews Cracking the Entrepreneurship Code. Have you cracked the code? I'm working, working on cracking it. And, you know, it's almost like a horizon that keeps moving away from you, right? You, you're getting closer, but at the same time, it keeps moving and it keeps shifting. <laughs> yeah. That being said, there are certain rules of the game that you just have to take for granted. Number one, you have to understand that the journey is very, very long and arduous. It's not easy yeah. to get there. Number two, you have to know that you're going to get hurt many, many times on the way there. And you're going to get knocked down. You have to get back up. Otherwise, you die. Just think in a desert. Think about, okay, you're basically leaving an oasis. And now in front of you, there is nothing but desert, but you have to cross it. A lot of unknowns. How large <clears throat> is that desert? Well, I have no idea, right? It could be two kilometers. It could be 2,000 kilometers. Right? I have no idea whether it's going to get cold, dry, whether I'm going to have enough supplies to survive. 
but you're going anyway, right? Yeah. Now, it's a very, very good metaphor because for some of them, they go for a couple of miles and go say, oh my God, I don't see how this is going to end. They're going to turn around. I'm going back to the oasis. I'm going back into my comfort zone, right? So unless you're willing to leave your comfort zone, whatever it is, for good and forever, not knowing there may ever be another one, don't become an entrepreneur. Okay, that's, that's, the good, that's a good one. How can people contact you? Uh, pretty easy. I think I'm the only Dom Einhorn uh, on LinkedIn. That's D-O-M as in Mary. Einhorn is E-I-N-H-O-R-N, which by the way stands for unicorn in German. <laughs> uh, website is unicorn with a Q, unicorninkubator.com. Email dom, D-O-M, at unicorninkubator.com. And again, unicorn with a Q. Excellent. Well, thank you very much, Dom, for your time today. Thanks for having me, Laurent. All the best to you. Well, cool. And thank you all for listening. Three ways you can make this podcast bigger and help me inspire as many entrepreneurs as possible. Subscribe, tell your network about it, and write a nice review. See you next time. Bye-bye.